Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest this week is an English comedian known for his know-all, know-nothing alter ego, the pub landlord, which earned him the coveted Perry Award at Edinburgh and saw him shortlisted for a Laurence Olivier Award. When he's not pulling pints on shows like Time Gentlemen Please, he drums in a band and is a writer and budding historian hosting the hit historical podcast We Have Ways of Making You Talk and making a series of shows for Sky History. He's also the recipient of an honorary degree and an honorary doctor of social science, as well as having earned a degree in modern history as a youth at Oxford University. He found a kindred spirit there in fellow students Richard Herring and Stuart Lee. After graduating in 1992, whilst working in what he calls the soup kitchen of young writers at Radio 4, he met his comedic match and soon-to-be writing partner Harry Hill. Renting a flat together and taking their stand-up to Edinburgh, it was in 1994, just minutes before their first show, that he created the xenophobic pub Landlord, and the rest is well-documented by 30 years almost of tours, DVDs, TV shows and books. He even burst through the fourth wall in 2015 when his fictitious pub landlord ran for parliamentary candidacy against Nigel Farage. With a beer in hand, his policies included bricking up the Channel Tunnel, locking up the unemployed and selling beer for one pence a pint. Away from his alter ego, he has a full head of hair and is a hugely enthusiastic historian with a passion for World War II. And he's just written Command, his first straight history book. 
And with a well-known catchphrase, a glass of wine for the lady, I can't think of a more perfect guest for the show. So let's dial him up. It's Al Murray. Welcome. Oh, hello. What an intro, crikey. I I was thinking, he he sounds busy and uh, impressive, this fellow, whoever he is. (laughs) But you are. And honestly, you are a revelation, Al. There is so much to you that I was just unaware of while seemingly being very aware of you for the last almost 30 years. Well, yeah, I mean, this is one of the advantages or, or uh, uh, you know, disadvantages, depending way, which way you look at it, of playing a character is that, they, yeah. that, that, um, that, you know, there are still an awful lot of people who, who ask me where my pub is. Anything. <laughs> Do they? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, how long did you run a pub before you decided to become a comic? Well, uh, I didn't, you know. Um, but it's, <laughs> With the it's just, it's just yeah, yeah, it's just one of those things. And and um, the the other the other thing is, you know, when I open my mouth, people people can sometimes be taken aback because I don't sound like the pub landlord. But I just sort no. of think, you know, if I was like him, someone would have someone would have punched me in the face a long time ago <laughs> and uh, told me to get knotted. So so um, obviously it wouldn't, it wouldn't be possible to be like that in real life. But um, yeah, I mean, I I do have I do have a lot going on, and in particular with the history in the la- in the last few years, that mm. was always the thing I sort of um, I never thought would ever be anything other than an interest. And you know, the, the world we live in now, you can sort of. You can get another. You can get a squeeze of the lemon out of things that you that you didn't imagine you ever would, and it, and because of podcasting, really. First and foremost, when I listened to the podcast, I had to double check because I'm so used to seeing you in character. I had to double check that yeah. I have, I am listening to the right podcast. It is you, <laughs> and then I yeah. just lost an entire weekend with you in my headphones while I was doing some gardening. <laughs> but you sound like a pig in shit. You sound like a man that's found <laughs> a brilliant way to earn a living, and oh. you almost don't care who's listening. You just want to share the knowledge. Well, this is it, and the. I mean, the thing is, the podcast came about because it's James Holland, who's he's this amazing historian. Um, you know, mm. that's that's what he does. He, he he he's right now. I think even as we speak, he's checking out battlefields, walking the terrain, getting used to the looking looking at what the you know what the incline in a street's like and why that would be so difficult yeah. to get people up and all that. So uh, I was put together with him for this podcast because we're friends. And what we would what we would do is if he was in town and had, you know, time to have lunch or sit in a pub for the afternoon, we would get together and talk about the Second World War. So I, I sort of have this enthusiastic sort of puppy role where I go, go on, tell me about the tell me about tell me about tell me what happened at, uh, you know at Dunkirk. you get He'll excited about inclines don't you like well the history books can't be right there because we've been to dunkirk and we've seen the inclines and that 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 piece in that film was not possible i mean you are well, geeks of the highest degree yes there's a lot of that going there is a lot of that going on yeah yeah we had the podcast ticking over and then the pandemic came and uh, uh, and like so many people we found that that, that, that was a, a, a great outlet for us. And also, my working life came to a grinding halt. March, March the year before last, I was about to go out on tour and it just had to stop. And the theatre's closed and you're like, well, what do, I, yeah. what do I do now? I can't do anything else. I was incredibly lucky that that timing has been right on this. And, I, and, and also, my dad is deeply involved in mm. uh, research and looking into stuff. So it's been a really lovely thing to, to sort of connect with my dad. Um, uh, yeah, because well. you wrote a book been... called Watching War Films mm. with My Dad, which is what you used yes. to do. And he has absolutely passed down that 
passion yes. uh, for yes. World War Two. Do, do your, yes. I mean, you've got two grown-up children and a, and a toddler. Yeah. Well, toddlers, yeah. primary school age. Well, uh, yeah. Do any of them share your World War Two <laughs> obsessions? <laughs> Well, my eldest, when they were doing their, because they both did A-level history, my older girls, they both, they, they would come to me and say, Dad, what do you think about this? And we would talk, they'd be able to talk to me at great length about it. And and sometimes I'd realise, you know, we we were driving someone, I'd realise I'd been talking for an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, and maybe, maybe <laughs> yeah, well, maybe they were looking out the window, but... Um, but, but um, <laughs> that's all right. You know, that's part of being a dad, I think. Um, but but I we, we right. yeah, th- th- they they are interested in it. And they and because um, uh, we, we we started doing a festival with 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 the podcast. We did a festival in September la- uh, last year and then July this year. And one of my one of my daughters, one of my older daughters, she came and stewarded and she actually absolutely loved it. She thought that because it was all talks and, you know, you got you could the, the, the mm-hmm. subject. Because the thing about the Second World War is people think. At first glance, oh, it's Spitfires or whatever, Spitfires and the Dambusters. But actually, it's like this massive global, social, uh, scientific, economic, technological event. Like it's the biggest, it's the biggest thing ever, you know. And I, I sort of don't understand when people go, oh, I don't really know about that, or they're not interested. I sort of don't understand why, because even just on the simplest level, uh, the politics we have in this country now, so much of it is like. Completely informed by that out of what happened in during the yeah. second world war yeah 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 you know yeah and juggle my questions around Al, because i wanted to to give you an yeah. opportunity and a platform to sort of preach sister yeah. right? because you're so good <laughs> on the podcast i didn't understand the tentacles mm. of the octopus of world war ii in quite the yeah. way that i should until i listened to your podcast like you know yeah. rolling all the way out to like you know china and japan and yeah. and you yeah. know so what i wanted to know from you for my very first question is i want a bit of a history lesson can we jump in yeah yeah okay yeah, absolutely i mean you are a history nut and it's yes. something that, until now, you've kept pretty much under your pub landlord bonnet. But I wanted mm. to know, because there's a huge debate about what we're taught in schools in terms of the history that sits uh, on our curriculum. If you had a chance yeah. to come in and rewrite the curriculum so that we could learn what we need to know, the truth as you understand oh, it, as opposed blimey. to Britain's greatest hits with a bit of a whitewash on our appalling behaviour, what would what would do I need to know, Al? Look, it's like well, giving you the sexiest question in the world, isn't it? Well, the, well, the thing is, the thing is, we have you have to remember that we had a great big empire. We we had a great big empire, and since the Second World War, we've done what we can to extract. We've done what we could to extract ourselves from that. But we did have one, have one, and the reason we were able, the reason we were able to fight and win the Second World War, is the empire. There's no yeah. no we, two we ways reserves. about it. Yeah. Oh, and well, not and not just that. Tons of money and and also global reach of you, you know mineral resources all over the world, and also other country other countries that weren't part of the empire who were totally economic dependent on us. Like because basically, you know, when people talk about globalization now or what globalization is like now, the, the, that you know the British Empire is a direct precursor to a global a global economy. London was the centre of a global economy that was the British Empire. All, you know, global money flowed through London. London was the where global capital went from all over the world, which meant that when a war came, London was able to draw on resources from all over the world. 
And the sort of scary bit is when the Germans get to the French coast and, and you know, they were within spitting distance of here. Mm. But in terms of in terms of power, the Germans were never going to be able to do anything more than that uh, because of the British Empire. The, the fact that the fact that the, the, the Russians and the Americans are then drawn in for all sorts of all sorts of reasons that is sort of nothing to do with us in a way adds the result. But you look, everything is to do with with the British Empire. And that, you know, and that means that our welfare state that we get after the war is because we're rich enough to have one because we had an empire. Our health service is because we had an empire. All those things, everything spew, everything comes from it. So then if you're going to get into the question of all the terrible things we did, uh, or that, you know, because there are people who want to just say it's all bad, and I understand why they want to say that about the British Empire, you've got to, you've got to then say, well, what are the fruits of it too? So it, it, and the Second World War is like the funnel point in the 20th century where those two things meet, because before the war, British politicians are all talking about the empire, and after the war, they're all talking about the nation. And there's a, there's a sick, there's a, there's a point where it all sort of sucks into this six-year gap and everything changes. It's actually, it's, it's really yeah. interesting when we talk about empires, and there's a brilliant podcast on, uh, available yeah. at the moment called Empire, which dissects yeah, yeah. different empires. It's really fascinating. Yeah. Um, but when we talk about the British Empire, you, you say there that we all have kind of, you know, views about how the empire was formed. But actually, yeah. do we have the right views? Because where it's, when it's taught to us oh. at school... It's like, you know, look, look, aren't we brilliant? We just went out there and we helped to take all these people into a more civilised world. No, we didn't. We pillaged. Well, well, um, why, well, why are well, we afraid to teach our history well, do you think? And, and honestly? Well, I don't know. You see, the, the thing is, though, is that the, the British Empire, every country, when it achieves the point where it's got enough money to set up an empire, does. You know, in, in, empire is a, like, zoom out. It's almost like a sort of civilizational function. You know, the French had a big empire as well as the British the Italians tried to get one, you know, the, the Germans, that's what the Germans were after. Empire is like the driving force of a lot of stuff. And the, I think the difference with the British Empire is, um, and, you know, I've been potentially hanging myself out to dry. It's the Industrial Revolution that makes the British Empire take on a completely different character to before. Turbocharges the whole thing. And, you know, and means that British soldiers have guns made of steel and they're fighting people that don't. You know, it's and that's the unique thing that started here as well. You know, it's the, the Industrial Revolution is Britain's contribution to sort of the the, the imperial mix. And I think um, that's that's the thing that kind of needs to, to be taught. Yeah, that's never been pointed out to me. That is that makes huge sense. Yeah, but it's also it's also but the kindling of the of the empire in itself in the. Uh, 17th and 18th centuries, why there's the money to be able to have an industrial revolution. So, you know, the, the thing is with history is there's an awful lot of chickens and a hell of a lot of eggs. Sometimes even figuring out which egg came out of which chicken and which chicken's going to come out of which egg is the, <laughs> is, the, is, the, is, the, is the problem. But, I mean, you know, the, 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 the Second World War, you look at, you, look at the, the, you know, the war in Europe is one thing and then the war in the Far East where Japan's thinking, these people have all got empires, why can't we have one? And then they're constrained by other imperiums where they sort of, you know, the British Empire goes, well, I'm sorry, too late, mate. You missed, you missed the party. It's the sort of... Um, We've taken British everything that's worth having. having. Exactly. You can't have it. You know, sorry, we, we've already got our dibs on it. Arguably, it's arguably one of the ways of looking at it. And then after all, you get into questions of degree, which is the thing people really argue about, you know, where they go, well, at least the British Empire wasn't as bad as the Belgian one. You can think, well, that's... That's pretty thin gruel, really, you know. That, 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 that is know, very thin yeah. gruel. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Why are we afraid, do you think, to look at our uncomfortable history? Oh, well, 
Well, because because um, he, you know the, the the thing is, is I, I mean, I always think this about history. Is there's there's the history and there's the history of academia, and uh, and then there's history that's off reservation, as it were, that's escaped, it's got out of academia and be- belongs to you and me and belongs to everybody. And and so often, and I think the war is a case in point in this, it's a story you tell about yourself to feel good about yourself or to le- reassure yourself that you're a good that you're a good person. You come from somewhere good, you know, like we do about ourselves, like like, you know, when you break up with someone, it's their fault. You know, <laughs> never you, you know, you know what I mean? History becomes a human is an imp- human impulse in that respect. And so I think. You want to look back and say, oh, well, it wasn't that bad. We weren't that cruel. We don't stand, we don't stand atop an enormous pile of dead. It's the sort of thing people have to say to themselves. And, uh, um, you know, particularly, and particularly countries, nations need to tell themselves a story. Then, you know, like, which is why standing alone is such an important story people tell themselves about the Second World War. When kind of, when you, when you push into it, it um, Britain standing alone, when you kind of push into it, it's not really there. It doesn't really, doesn't really add up this sort of five minutes where it looks like that but really when you if you if you weigh everything in this economic and military and political scales it's just not the case that didn't happen but it feels better i'd rather be the underdog you know than than, than the enormous crushing war machine imperial war machine (laughs) yeah If, if you had a chance to go in and sort of address some of the nuance of the way that history is taught so that it inspires people to carry on learning about it because it's so important. We are who we are based on what's gone before, right? It's massively important. Um, uh, We had Skin on on the show a couple of years back from Skunk and Nancy. And we were talking about, for her, how it became a revelation for her to discover that in 1893, Lucius Septimius Severus was... Severus, the Black Emperor. Yes, but do you know how he is immortalised in our his- in our museums? He's carved right. out of white marble. So she was never <laughs> able to see that representation. Yeah. Yeah. That's an, yeah. I mean, it's not just nuance. That's a massive whitewash, or is it? Well, I think I think it. You know, I, well, first of all, did they not paint marble? I don't know. So so maybe the maybe the paint came off. I don't know because after all, when you've got a th- an artifact from two thousand years ago, we're not looking at it the way they would or you know, best part of 2000. We're not looking at it the way they did. We don't know how it fits. Maybe every, you know, maybe, maybe the, the assumption is, you know, that he's black from, from when it, from when that statue was carved. I don't know. Cause um, and this is the other yeah. thing I'm going to do. The, I'm going to do the historian's defense now. Not my period. I don't know. Nothing to do with me. <laughs> <laughs> 1939, 1939, 1945. Fine. Yeah, but uh, no, but I mean, no, but this is, this is exactly the point. Uh, and you don't need to go that far back. You look at, you look at the, you know, the war in Burma, the, the way people like to portray the war in Burma is there's a British general called Slim, and it's all about Slim and how clever he was. But he was fighting it with, he used the Indian army to win that campaign. It's the Indian army made up of Indians and Africans, as it happens, who fight that campaign and win that campaign. And the British, the British presence is about 10%. It's 90% Indian effort. Wow. But it's portrayed as Br- Britain's 14th army win in Burma. No, nah, it's the Indians. And what's interesting about that as well is there's the racial component to that for the Japanese at the time, whose culture at the time was extremely like uh, uh, racially oriented. They cannot bear the fact they're beaten by Indians. They, it, it's like the humiliation is total that they're losing to Indian soldiers. And they, they sort of they can cope with losing to the Americans. They can cope with losing to the British on some level because they regard 
those races as colonising races and imperial races. But the idea of losing to Indian soldiers is essentially intolerable. And that's, fac- that's, that's really interesting. And that's only, you know, in, in the historical records, that's five minutes ago. Um, uh, it is, uh, yeah. Compared to, compared, uh, but, but what then happens, of course, is partition comes, you know, India gets independence, partition comes along. And so that, that entire thing has gone out of Indian history. It's not important. It's not part of their myth of how they see them, you know, their foundation myth, because India and Pakistan are literally created two, three years later. It's not part of their calculation of how they see themselves. The Second World War, the way that it is for us. What happens is one thing, but how people write about it is is almost more interesting. Um, And when I when I first went to uni and first did history, that's what we did the first term. And they really hammered it into us like the historiography aspect. And I didn't like it. I was like, no, I want to know what I want to know why why what happened happened. But actually, how we write about it is, is, you know, I mean, you look at the way where the Second World War clearly sits in Russian culture and how it's been used and turned into this story that mm. Russians all have to know that's turned that's become part of the casus belli for the Russians in in Ukraine. It's absolutely amazing, you know, that that, that they think yeah. they're fighting Nazis now. You know, like, what were you talking about? You know, it's, and, and you compare that to our view of the Second World War. Yeah, it's reworked and reheating old narratives. Yeah. To, I mean, yeah. literally, but uh, you know, to create very potent propaganda, oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and yeah, it's, yeah. isn't it incredible in this day and age that, that that people are allowed to sort of create this echo chamber within a nation, so that it's it's so difficult to get truth in over the top. Well, yeah, but it's I mean, it's I, I think th- this is an eternal story though, because you because one of the things that's changing in history is now you've got everything online. You can literally Google a phrase. And find the first time it appears in documents, right? A, a, a couple of things I went to illustrate this. I went, once went to a lecture where it was a historian, a historian of ideas, and he was looking at the invention of the idea of the fact, right? The fact being an indisputable truth, right? Because yeah. that, that you, that, that it's not subject to opinion, right? And in English... No, it's undeniable. Word, exactly. And in, in English, that word emerges at the end of the Civil War, when basically... There's been 20 years of people having religious arguments with each other about stuff. And there's a pushback. People going, look, we just need to agree on some things that can't be argued about. And we need some things that are called, what should we call them? Facts. And so, and so the idea of facts gets invented. And this bloke was able to discover this because he used the Guggenheim project where you literally, where you literally put the word fact in and it goes far back, far back as the first time it wow. appears. It's in 1640. 1652 or something, someone goes, right, we need we need some things that are undisputed, like like and, and it's the same time you're getting this real like burst in new science. So we need some things that are undisputed, like gravity, like, you know, how fast yeah. what you know, what when midday is like just things we can't things we can't <laughs> argue. I mean, literally things we can't argue the toss about because we've been killing each other over things we've been arguing. the toss about. It's absolutely fascinating. Anyway. So then, so then this other historian, he'd done the same thing. And he looked for the idea in British national newspapers and broadcasts during the Second World War of Britain standing alone, right? And, it's, and he, he basically can't find it. Certainly, it's not present in British government propaganda. It's not present in newspapers in 1940, right? It's just not there. They're not talking about it like that. They're not framing what happens after Dunkirk like that at all, right? And he presents this case and he goes through it. And he's got, and he's got the, there's, there's a famous cartoon, which is, which is called All Right Then Alone. And it's subtitled with our 350 million Commonwealth allies, you know, blah, 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 and the America and all that, right? 
And it's so it, it acknowledges the point that he's making. Anyway, we get through this great long lecture, lots of questions. And this old boy right at the end, he puts his hand up and goes, well, I mean, I and he says, I'm 90 and I remember these times. And you think, well, you well, you maybe you're probably like four, but let's not. Because this is a few years ago. Let's not get hung up on that. I remember those times and I know perfectly well that we were on our own. And we stood alone. That's how everyone felt. You could do all the research you want. But if an idea's got, if an idea's stuck to people, you'll never dislodge it. You will never, ever dislodge it. And it's really, it's really, He wasn't prepared to let the facts get in the way of an opinion. Well, but also maybe people, and the other thing is, is maybe people did feel like that. The fact it's not in the newspapers and not in the archives and you can't find it. You can't find the feelings. And that's the other really, really interesting thing about history is you mm. never can actually yeah. find the feelings. You never can actually. And, you know, stuff that's written down will never know the tone. And the, so the which is the other great thing about history is this essential mystery at the heart of it is we'll never really know what anyone was thinking. We'll never really know why anyone did anything, you know, because c- there's no way of ever truly knowing. And that's that's brilliant. That That's why why there are history podcasts that can talk about the war <laughs> three years without shutting up like me and Jim. So, you know, that's why this is, that's why this whole thing exists because we'll never know. It's it's fascinating because I've always been, I've always thought that there's two schools. There's, there's fact and then there's opinion. And I worry constantly in in this day and age that the two are are often confused, but actually you've put a third into the mix there, feeling. (laughs) And that that creates the mood of the nation. And, and, And actually that's, it's different from an opinion. It's a feeling, and a feeling can really inform the way you shape a fact. It's fascinating. Yeah. Well, well, we, you, well, a feeling can, can it, it, depending what you think the facts are as well. Your feelings can spring from yeah, that, exactly. So, which is, yeah, which is which is the, the issue, isn't it? I mean, that and that you know that that even goes back to the brief the brief bit of therapy I did years and years ago, where they go, well, what do you think? You know, your feelings are based on what you think's happening. Maybe you're wrong about what's happening. And so they're your feelings have sprung for the wrong place. You know, and that, and that you know, this is, you know, what's interesting about history, I think, is people get bogged down at being kings and queens and dates and blah, blah, blah. But it's about it's it's about people and how they feel and what they think's happening to them and, and all that. And that that's really that's really, really, I think that's incredibly interesting. And um, and obviously it can only be about nuance. But we, we see this at the moment, don't we? I mean. Actually, when you look at the the fight that the Ukraine's the Ukrainian people are waging against a much bigger beast in yeah. in Russia, clearly one of the miscalculations Putin had is I mean if you wanted to if you wanted to make people feel Ukrainian, um, invade them. That, that's the, the quickest way to unite a country uh, around an, a national central national idea, even one that you know apparently is conflict or in his view is conflicted with the Russian idea of nationhood. And the th- I mean, the thing is, a lot of these are, are, are ancient lessons and, and um, you know, the, 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 the attacks on Kiev, what are they supposed to do? Are they supposed to, like, further galvanise the Ukrainians? Because if that's what they're aimed, aimed at doing, that's what they're going to do. They're obviously not. They're designed to break their will. And that's not going to happen. Six, they're six, not, how many months into this, seven months into this. The Russians must know that isn't going to work. You know, they must know that's not going mm. to work. But... But who knows? Because who knows what they know? And who knows what their feelings are based on the facts they have? Uh, to go back to the thing we've just been talking about. No, exactly. Well, facts, propaganda, the, you know, a yeah. war of information, yeah. which, which was, yeah. you know, when you think back to, to World War Two, the war of disinformation was m- minuscule yeah. in comparison to the, the way in which information is banded around the world now or repressed in certain sections of the world. It's fascinating. 
as you can see, I spent far too long listening to your podcast and, and I'm now like literally part of the History Fangirl Club. Like, hey, Al, can I come and give one of your lectures with you? Got any good TED Talks you can recommend? And you've seduced me, as you can tell. Um, I'm literally like putty in your history hands there. Um, it's nice to know. It's a great podcast. I hope you continue to make it. I really do. Um, right. Oh, well, listen, as you can hear, I could go on about this forever, but I do have another question for you. So let's, uh, yes. let's move it on, shall Shoot. we? Question Shoot. number two. Yep. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Okay, my second question for you, Al. Upon doctor's orders, you were told to get up and apply yourself by your good friend and mentor, Dr. Harry Hill. It was advice you took and it paid dividends. But when else in life has tough love and straight talking pushed you forward? Um, well, that was, I remember, I mean, I actually remember the conversation. There used to be a circuit of college gigs that you could do, which was always a bit of a penance. Always felt like a penance. So you'd go to lots of student unions and you'd go play. I mean, you, you, you'd, what, what would happen is you'd end up sitting in the Ents officer's um, uh, office on a pile of posters in his office. And he'd be going, I don't know why no one's coming. And you think, well, because I'm sat on these posters you turn up. You haven't put them up, right? It's pretty obvious. <laughs> <laughs> and some of those Ents officers then went on to be incredibly powerful people in the entertainment sector. But let's, let's, not, let's not dwell on that. But... Um, but um, it, it, but but I remember we were driving somewhere, and Harry, because ba- uh, I I'd got into stand up because I sort of thought, well, you know, this 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 is looks like a lot of fun, it looks like fun, and it looks like a way of kind of continuing a kind of uh, get up late in the morning lifestyle um, of the the kind I'd become accustomed <laughs> at uni, and uh, and the people in it are all really interesting and they're all good fun, so I wasn't particularly motivated by. Um, I wasn't motivated. Fame was not the spur, nor was money. Um, it was like, oh, this looks like a gas. 
And I remember Harry saying to me, and I remember we were, I think we were driving to Bangor, somewhere like that, Bangor University. And he said, you know, he said, Al, you're really good at this, but you just don't work very hard. And I sort of don't, I kind of don't understand it. <laughs> he said, you don't really apply yourself. And I kind of don't understand it because, you know, you're really good at this. And you could be, you could be really good. And I said, really? What? what? And he said, well, you know, because the way I see it is down the line, I'm going to have probably, I'm going to have a family and some kids and I'm going to, I'm going to have owed it to them to have worked really hard because I'm going to, and, and none of this event had ever occurred to me. I just thought, this is a giggle, you know, this will be fun, you know, all this sort of stuff. <laughs> and, it, and it really, really, really struck me. And, um, and he, the thing about, the thing is, is he'd been to, he'd done a medical degree. He'd been to medical school. He'd become, he'd done a, the junior doctor thing. So he had, prior to, to becoming a stand-up, worked really bloody hard. You know, in the way that the way that maybe doing a history degree wasn't quite the same kind of graft, and, and <laughs> what versus junior doctor? Well, yeah. Exactly, and you know the, he, uh, um, the, the the horror stories him and his friends would tell me about being a junior doctor. You'd sort of think, well, you know, that that that, that doesn't sound much like the time I fell asleep in the library. You know, <laughs> the, 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 so, and so I and I really and the thing is, is I really, really took I really took it to heart. Because the thing is, is he was he was he was incredibly applied, and stuff was just happening for him because he was working so hard, so focused on what he was doing, and I took it to heart and I thought, you know what, he's right, and um, I ought to get my finger out, and it and it and it did basically yield instant, instant results. The hard, you know, it's that the harder you work, the luckier you get thing, and um, yeah. and I, I, I do I do I do really feel like I mean I, I'd have probably figured it out eventually for myself. But I really, I feel like he saved me a couple of years. <laughs> Would it be fair to say that that you gained a sense of momentum with Harry around? For example, the pub landlord was born literally minutes before, well, an MC didn't turn up in Edinburgh. Is that right? Or is well, that just Well, no, well, well, how it was is we were doing a show and I was playing the, we had a little band with me and um, uh, our dear, no longer with his pal, Matt and Harry, the three of us. And we had a thing called the pub band. And, and that was at the end of the show. And there were various bits and pieces that they would do together. And the idea was I was going to link it. Um, and I'd come up with a character that didn't work. And we got to Edinburgh and I still hadn't fixed the problem of how I was going to link the show. I hadn't, hadn't come up with anything that worked. So we're in a bar, we're in the cabaret bar at the Edinburgh Fringe. And I said, at Ple the Pleasance in the Edinburgh Fringe. And I said, why don't we say that the compare hasn't turned up and the barman has offered to fill in? Why don't we, why don't we do that? You know, that might work. Um, and, and Harry gave me the kind of look that he'd given me for a fair while of, you know, yeah, yeah, all right, you and your, you and your bright ideas. And I, and I went on and did that. I wrote some, jotted some things down and went on and did it. And it, and it, it got laughs like out of nowhere, this sort of... Um, although when I first did it, he, he, had, he had basically been forced on stage at kind, of, at kind of a gunpoint, which is not what the pub landlord's like anymore. It's quite the opposite. Um, no. But... Uh, but I, but but and then we did a and then the next day I cut all my hair off, and we did uh, two three weeks at Edinburgh or whatever it was. And by the end of it, I had an act. I had a thing. It just sprung out of thin air. And the thing was, is because the pressure was to just do it and make sure it was funny. And 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 Harry was a real yeah. was a real gag gag monster. It had to be funny, you know. You it couldn't rest. It couldn't have any sort of longers in it or any of that sort of stuff. So it was a it was a kind of amazing stroke of luck really that that, that 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 happened and then we went on a big tour and by the end of the tour I had Nas material 
And I was up. I was up and running. It was incredible. I mean, the sacrifice has been, you've got a lovely head of hair, Al, and you've never really been able to grow it since then. I know, I know. Uh, uh, and a head of hair to the point where last year when I appeared on some breakfast telly or in the middle of the pandemic with hair and a beard, it made the Daily Mail. Shocked viewers. Did you read the comments? The com- I read them like yesterday and never, the comments were like... Never read the comments, no. <laughs> what did it say? No, there was a lot of sort of like middle-aged women getting a bit, whoo, look at him, hotness. <laughs> Witness the fitness. <laughs> Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah. So Harry's obviously been a big influence with the sort of tough yeah. love. Where else yeah. in, in life have you been shown well, some, you know, shown that, that tough love, do you think? Um, well, I think um, when I, well, God, the, ne- the, well, the next time was, wasn't long after that. I remember going to my uh, manager and saying, I want to go to Edinburgh with this now. And he went, no, you're not ready. You're not going. And I thought, right, well, then I won't go. But sodger next year, you wait, you wait. Next year, this will be absolutely gleaming, this show. And, and, and that worked. I don't know that that was their in, his intention, but it absolutely worked. In the middle of the, middle of the 90s, I really sort of got like a um, rod up my ass for, for applying myself to the point of almost, you know, almost of um, sort of an unhealthy obsession. I used to have this thing that if I, if I went on holiday, I'd, I'd think, oh, God, I'm going to forget how to do this. So I, I just worked, I worked probably flat out for five years, very rarely went away, did it. No time off, sort of ten gigs a week. So you do like three or four on a three, three or four on a Friday or a Saturday night, and fill the week up, and just like be completely obsessed. That was directly going to my manager. Go right, okay, this is my plan, and him saying, "No, you, no, you're not ready. Don't be stupid." And that was a bit of a, you know, because I'm a, I, I've got quite a high opinion of my abilities. <laughs> At the best. Of <laughs> Are you still with the same manager? Yeah, I am actually, and um. Uh, yeah, we, last year we went, we went, yeah, we went for lunch for like our 30 year, you know, no friendship lunch, which is quite a thing. That was a new thing. Oh God. 30 years. We're all getting old. Yeah. 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 But you know what's depressing now is that, you know, I, I speak as one. I've been with my agent, like you, longer than I've sustained yeah. any other relationship. Oh, Isn't oh, that oh, tragic? oh, oh, yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> um, it's longer than I've lived anywhere and it's... It's longer than I've lived and it's longer than I've loved. It's, um, it's, it's terrible, <laughs> isn't it? But it is, it's that tough love. It yeah. is that somebody that's, that's there to, it's like having a producer in your ear going, yes. come on. No, better. afraid not. Yeah, better. bad idea. Yeah, you know better than that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it is really, it is really good. The thing people like to tell themselves about show business is everyone's sort of, we all, we all just, we all just get along, we're all pals and it's all a big fun house. And obviously it isn't. I mean, it's a channel house. It's a, it's a, you know, I mean, my, cause my, one of my daughters, she's, she's at drama school and there's a bit of me that thinks, you know, maybe, maybe reconsider becoming an accountant. Yeah. <laughs> I know you never want this life for your kids, do you? Because of, because of no. the unpredictability, but I think actually we're being very unfair because I, I don't know, you know, I look back and yes, there were lots of sleepless nights, but my God, I've had a good time. Through and I yeah. do something I love every day. You can't deny anybody that, can you? No, no. Well, that's it. And and if if heaven forbid, it's a it's a question of self expression and all those important things. Then um, I don't want to. I don't want to get in the. I certainly don't want to get in the way of that. You know, she she wants to write plays. She wants to write telly. She wants to write. And you sort of think, well, you know, I don't want to. But then there is the other bit of me thinks, yeah, but you know, accountancy. <laughs> Everyone, we'll always need, we'll <laughs> always need accountants, darling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is that, 
it is that thing of, you know, but then I suppose the completely reductive version of that would be like, have you thought of being an undertaker? You know, there are people always, people always yeah. need undertakers. <laughs> so that's the complete... Loads last... of people die every day, every minute. <laughs> exactly, completely reductive parenting. Have you thought about... Supply and demand. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> What did, what did your parents say when you suddenly went, hey, meet my friend Harry, he used to be a doctor, he's a comedian, like me now. Yeah, that well, Oxford they, degree's going to good use. They never, they've never said anything about um, whether um, it gave them the heebie-jeebies. They never exhibited any at the time. They, none of it. Wow. I, I, um, I only ever went to them, I think I only ever went to them for money once when I'd blown up my car and I needed a new gearbox. But I think they ne- they they've they've and they've always come to stuff. They always used to come to Edinburgh. They always like, and, and, and even when I knew they didn't really dig the stuff I was doing, they always they were always supportive. So there's never been there has never ever been wow. there's never been the conversation where they go, you know, uh, what about you know what about the law or whatever. That's it's just it's just never ever come up. And I think they're. I mean, I think that they they have been absolutely amazing in that respect, and because um, uh, you know, because you, you worry, you obviously worry about disappointing your parents. The thing I really worry about is like them, like you know, the idea that they'd be lying awake at night going, "Oh, that gag of his that he opens with doesn't really fire," <laughs> you know, oh, that opening that closing numbers a load of shit, you know, <laughs> you know, or whatever. But like, <laughs> it's it's just no, they they've always been they've always been amazing. They've always been supportive, but. You know, I remember my dad taking to one side and going, that bit you do, the, um, the, that bit. Because I used to have a very sweary thing a long time ago, 20 years ago. And he goes, that bit's really very, very funny, but your mother does not like it. But I think it's hilarious. And then he'd, sort of, <laughs> and he'd chuckle away to himself. And then he'd say, but your mother really doesn't. <laughs> and that, and that, that's been about it for <laughs> critical input. <laughs> that's the level of tough love there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you've raised two teenage daughters. You've got another mm. one uh Gonna yes. hit her teens across well, I, the next decade. Yeah. What's that like in terms of tough love, Al? <laughs> well, I mean, maybe I should have had a word with myself. Um, that, that, um, oh, it's brilliant. <laughs> I'm absolutely, I'm absolutely loving going going round again. It's brilliant, and um, I've got a bit of material in my in the show I've got at the moment. It's obviously just come completely from this, of like what it's like with how you treat your firstborn and then how you treat your third. Right, so you know the firstborn, you take loads of pictures of it, and you when it walks, you phone all your mates yeah. and all that. And then the second one, when it, you know, the second one basically, there's no photographic evidence of existence. And then the, by the by the time you've got yeah. the, the the idea is by the time you've got a fourth child, it's like a poltergeist. It's like you hear the doors slam, and the food <laughs> disappears. You know, and in family photos, there's a face that no one recognises, and all that sort of stuff, right? And um, my my it's my wife's first, but my third. So we've simultaneously got me going, ah, don't worry about it. She's just fallen down the stairs. And then, and then my wife going, oh, no, my baby has fallen down the stairs. So, so it's, it's, quite a good, it's quite a good tension because it means, you know, I'm reminded of, you know, the fact that, that, it's really, that having kids is really special and important because it's my wife's first. And she's also reminded that it's completely ordinary. Having kids is ordinary and normal and a thing you get <laughs> yeah, over. And they fall downstairs. <laughs> And they fall downstairs. <laughs> and, and, nine, and nine times out of ten, they don't land on their head. You know, play the odds. <laughs> I mean, the, but, um, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it, I abs- I mean, it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And, and we've, we have just started primary school again. And it, 
there's a bit of dread about oh god the you know the short school day the 315 thing which for self-employed people is an absolute nightmare but you know also it's it, it's uh it's lovely i, I i'm really i'm 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 really enjoying it again and also the weird thing was with the pandemic is i was suddenly that's the longest i've ever been at home um uh, yeah. in, in a solid straight chunk and so she got what my elder two never got which is basically me being around for a year and a half but they never they never yeah. got that and it and um it's been it's been that has been amazing and um uh and uh, and also like made me made me think a bit more about work life balance and all that stuff because i i think i you, you know i'm one of those people who will probably class as a workaholic you've you've very obsessive nature don't you yeah i think so yeah 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 or yeah sort of kind of super focused but then i i, I don't know the, the the hip thing in edinburgh this year for comedians was to say they had adhd um everyone everyone suddenly said that they, there were lots of people doing shows about how they had adhd and i remember reading the reading this sort of thing of like you know lots lots of things you're interested in uh not necessarily able to settle on one and all this sort of thing Hang on, I mean, is, is that me and i thought no it's just me i'm just i that i haven't got uh, there's nothing you know i don't have a disorder or anything there's nothing i don't have a label i've just basically built a life for myself where i work really hard at stand-up so i can dick around doing all the other things i want to do <laughs> and why not uh speaking of all the things that you're obsessed about that takes me really nicely to my to my third and final question for you Al. Okay, my third and final question. I'd like you to imagine that you are stood behind the bar, your fictitious bar is the pub landlord, and you've got an opportunity to populate that bar with people who truly share some of your passions and obsessions. So who are they and what do they represent? Oh, gosh. Well, um, I would, I would, I mean, I would get, um, uh, well, James Holland, because we just, you know, we just sit in the corner and talk about the invasion of Sicily or something for hours on end and, Everyone else would have to listen. So James but, is no, your co-host on James the is podcast. my co-host on We Have Ways to Make You Talk. I would love. Um, I, I, um, I, my other thing is playing the drums, and um, and I would love. Uh, I was when I was a boy, I was a massive fan of Phil Collins, and particularly of his drumming. And I would love to sit down for an afternoon with him, and get him to tell me how he did it, what was going on in his head, what his approach to music was, mm. how he came at it what the things he had to work on were, what, if he'd hear it, did he hear a piece of music and know exactly what to do? Or did he have to really think about it and like plan it out? I just want to know. And like I say, I absolutely loved when I was a kid. I didn't mind that, that he was naff for a bit. I didn't care about any of that. I didn't, didn't, didn't bother me. I'd love to go say, so what on that tune? What were you doing? And where did it come from? And who'd you been listening to? Because uh, the thing with, the thing I love with musicians is when they go, oh, well, I'm really influenced by this. And you think, I can't hear it in, I can't hear it in what you're doing. You want to see the workings out. Yeah, you, you want to see, well, that bit, and I took that and I turned it round, or I, or I got the energy of that and applied it to the sort of style of something else. And, I, and it wouldn't just have to be him. I mean, I know, I know quite a few drummers from, the, from having exploited my, my uh, fame to, to make friends with them and all that. And I would, there's just people I'd love to sit down and go, on that record you played this. And very often they go, I don't know, I can't remember. It was 35 years ago, what are you talking about? Right, but in the stuff I've read but it'd be really brilliant to do that and he so him I think so Phil I want to sit Phil down and go 
that album what's going on what how did you arrive at that way of doing things and when did your style change and you know all that sort of stuff because you, you play you play drums in a band called fat cops yes. with amongst others yeah. uh, a doctor called neil murray yes. who is no relation but is actually married to jk rowling yes yeah that's right yeah that happened because i've you know i've lived this sort of peripatetic life and make friends all over the country and um I made friends with, it was during the Scottish referendum. I made friends with a whole bunch of people up there, just chatting with them on Twitter about it. And they were, they had a band. I know. They had a band. And I turned up at the studio with them record when they were recording and sat in on the drums for something. And one of them took to one side and said, do you want to, do you want to play with us? Well, maybe we'll do something else. Because it would play very differently to the guy they've got. And so that, that's just sort of, tumbled along we made an album during the beast from the beast from the east Do you remember when all our all the extent of our problems in this country was some snow right the, the... yeah <laughs> those good old days <laughs> exactly whoa, whoa it's the baddest thing's got and i got i got stuck in glasgow couldn't leave the studio um uh because of because of this weather while we were making the album and then and then and then the last time we got together was in march of 2020 so we what tends to happen is natural disasters are out to get this band, try and stop us recording. So we'd recorded like four tunes <laughs> in March and then, and then had, to dis, had to disperse because of the pandemic. And I remember Neil, like you said, he's a doctor. He wouldn't, he, we were a very like man hug, bear hug band. And he wouldn't touch anyone. He's going, oh, get away from me. This is the big one. We're all, <laughs> we're all in real trouble. <laughs> Your love of drums, you, you actually ended up buying a drum making business, which now employs how many people? I think it's, I think we're there's sort of 25 of us in the factory in Stockport. Yeah. And we've got, we've wow. got. Wow, how did that happen, Al? Well, I met this guy called Keith Keogh when he was working somewhere else. And he's a, he's a genius. He's, he's like, he's, he's got this incredible mind for like making stuff. He's got an incredible design aesthetic and all that. And, and we met and he made me a, I got divorced and I had a drum kit made as a sort of midlife crisis statement. And, and it was going to be the last set of drums I ever <laughs> made. And he would make it completely bespoke, whatever you wanted. So we hit it off. And every, every time I went to the Northwest, I'd go and see him and I'd pop, it, I'd pop in and go, how's it going? Because it's like knowing Willy Wonka, right? And I went, <laughs> I went to see him and, I mean, it really, really, it genuinely is, right? And I went to see him and, and, uh, and I said, oh, how's it going? He says, oh, I think I'm about to get, I think they're about to shut me down. The, the, the companies would shut his branch, the company down. So I said, I said, well, if that happens, let me know and we'll go into business together. Like without having spoken to an accountant or anything. And, and it's seven years later now. And there's a fat, big factory. And we've, we've got um, Mark Richardson who plays in, uh, in Skunk and Nancy. So uh, with Skin, like you say, the drummer in the Mannix. We've Bastille. Uh, Nico in Iron Maiden, Ian in Kasabian, Charlatans, uh, uh, Cortinas, um, what's his name? Uh, Joe in The Blossoms. We've got a whole load of artists playing our stuff. Wow. And jazz players. And a lot of it sprung out the North, players in the Northwest, but we've got people all over the, all over the world now. And the drums are just going, in, just going on sale in Japan, in Australia. Um, and they're handmade in England. They are handmade. They, we make our own ply. They cut it with a standing knife and a steel ruler in England. It's an amazing thing to be involved in. So that is, I mean, that's a proper, it's a proper business. This isn't you just playing uh, yeah. at running a drum making no. factory. You're actually doing no. it. 
Wow. It's lying awake at night wondering how we're going to pay the bills as well. It's all that. So, um, but it's, 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 it's uh, you know, that's being a businessman. But it's, it's called the British Drum Company. We, we make the drums in England. They're beautiful. My, my, this office is full of prototypes and full of, full of stuff that gets sent to me to try, which is really cool. That's amazing. So yeah. you really are. You're, you're now Willy Wonka's sort of well, chief taster. Yeah, I, that's exactly who I, that's exactly who I am. I'm Willy, I want to, I'm Willy Wonka's chief taster, and, you know, and we have a load of umpalumpas. But um, uh, yeah, that it, it is an amazing, it is an amazing thing. So in this bar, we've got all your drumming friends and Phil Collins. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. We've got James Holland. Who's there to represent the comedy corner? Who is it that you could just sit and riff with for hours um, from from the circuit? Well, from the circuit. Well, I'd have to have Harry there. I'd love to have met Spike Milligan and talked to him. Um, Steve yeah. Martin, who I absolutely, who I just adore. So Steve Martin and Martin Short. I'd love to. I'd, I'd love to have them and just have them taking the piss out of each other because the, the the way they do that is. Um, really fantastic that the the special their netflix special on uh, that, that they've got up at the moment is is hilarious they do like 20 minutes of just doing jokes about about each other to the, to each other's face and they obviously love each other so it's fine but like some of it is really like really like you know things you'd things you shouldn't be able to get away with saying about someone but they're doing it stood opposite each other and they do a whole thing with photos old photos of each other where they're absolutely shredding each other it's hilarious you know, although I would, I would, I think with Steve Martin, I'd have a proper, I'd have proper meet your heroes fear on. I think I would, I think I'd have a, I'd really be worried about what to say and not to make a fool of myself and not to piss him off and all that. I think it would be, that would be a thing I'd be very worried about. A yeah. proper hero. Yeah. Oh, oh you are so, you've, you know, I've thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. I've enjoyed reading your books, listening to your podcast. Just, um, you know, more power to you. I, I love the fact that Thank if, you. If you find an interest, you literally rinse the arse out of it, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. Basically. I mean, my wife might have a different view, but um, yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, the, the, the book is out now. It's called Command. It's yeah. your first straight history book, but there are plenty of other books in your back catalogue as well, yes. uh, including watching World War II films with my dad, which is a lovely, lovely um, stroll through some really important times with your, with your dad. I really enjoyed yeah. that as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. And good luck with the podcast and thank you for coming on. Thank I you. really hope I might see you at some sort of geeky history TED talk. Well, I mean, you, you would always be welcome anytime at the festival uh, next, uh, the end of next year. You'd be, we'd love to have you. If, I mean, if you want somebody to come along and do the history of Wham or the life and times of George Michael, I've already done it on Mastermind. I'm pretty well prepared. Well, you know what? Um, if, the, if there's a way of linking that to Second World War, no matter how tenuous, maybe maybe that's exactly what we do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you so much, Al. Don't forget, Al Murray's brand new book, Command, is out wherever you get your books. And there's over 400 hours, yes, of We Have Ways of Making You Talk wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, if you want to hear more great chat with more comedy legends, look no further than our back catalogue where you'll find Ed Gamble and James Acaster, Keith Lemon, Russell Kane, Kerry Godleyman, 
Daisy May Cooper, Jenny Eclair, Griff Reese Jones, John Thompson, and many, many more. My thanks to you, as always, for joining us, and to Maria Nibs and the Yahoo Studios team who produced the show with me. Editing is by Eleanor Humphrey, and our music comes courtesy of Andy Bell. You can check out his solo material as well as his work with Ride and Oasis wherever you get your music. We'll be back next week with more great guests. Until then, thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu dot com code GLOW.